The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. If you're listening uh, once again or twice again or thrice again, welcome back. It's always great to have your company. Ash Flanders is a multi-award winning playwright and screenwriter. In 2006, he and Declan Green formed theatre company Sisters Grimm, and together they have written a dozen shows, including Summertime in the Garden of Eden, Little Mercy, The Sovereign Wife, Calpurnia Descending, and Lilith, The Jungle Girl. Ash has also created the solo shows Meme Girls, Special Victim, Playing to Win, Ash Flanders is Nothing, End of, and SS Metaphor. He marries this writing with an engaging, exciting and electric performance style that captivates audiences to guarantee a very unique experience. Colleague Declan Green describes Ash as the youngest grand old dame of the Australian stage. He can bring an audience to side-splitting laughter with the raise of an eyebrow, the flick of a wrist. In his new play, End Of, he refocuses his comic gifts to offer up a tender meditation on ageing, parenthood and the big end we all face. Ash brings the play to Sydney for a season at the Griffin Theatre. Stages caught up with Ash to discuss the play, his extensive repertoire and his talent to amuse. Is my audio fine and everything? Yeah, no, it's great. Can great. You hear me? Okay, good. You've obviously done this many times. Not as many as I should have. <laughs> Put it out there. Ash Flanders is available for Zoom conversations. For, yes. 24 7. Podcasts. Yeah, anytime. Anytime you need. I'm surprised you don't have your own podcast. As am I. I have, <laughs> like, I have written, I like, you know, the idea of doing it from the ground up is like, is definitely in my wheelhouse and something I've had to do for pretty much every other facet of my career. But, um, yeah, my agents once told me that I think if you're going to be on TV, you're probably going to have to write the show yourself. And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to have to build a satellite and beam it into people's houses myself because I am 
one of the biggest one-man bands out there. Ain't no one opening a door for me. I will build the door and open it myself and say welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and what a great start. Yeah. Terrific, terrific. Um, Ash, um, this morning I've been watching Ash Flanders is Nothing. Mm-hmm. I've been living it. Yeah, well, it's 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 an extraordinary piece. Um, I was I was just glued to it. I'm mean, I've got fifteen minutes to go. I had to stop to talk to you, um, so <laughs> I'm living it at the moment. But um, <laughs> it's a beautiful piece, and you know they say you know the advice to writers is write what you know, and you've obviously written what you know, um, discussing um, very personal experiences with family and and friends. How do those subjects cope about being aired on stage? Do you get any flack from from um, fam? Well, uh, I don't get any flack from family because that, that would mean they came to my shows. But um, <laughs> my my mum and dad come. They love being talked about. They they really enjoy it. There's like a very like attention seeking part of DNA in my, running through my whole family. So being talked about is wonderful. Um, my mum will often, people will ask me when my mother's coming to see the show because they want to be in the audience when my mother is there because she will heckle or she will, like, cause some sort of scene. You know, in one of my first ever solo show, I was talking about, um, you know, being at Christian youth camp that my mum's brother owns, long story, and I was there all the time and um, didn't take. And uh, it was like uh, I would go to sleep at night and, like, I had this whole monologue about, you know, like I would kind of hope that I would die in my sleep because I had a feeling when I got older I was going to be very bad. And um, I was, like, in the middle of telling this story and it's, like, really taking the audience down to then pick them back up again, you know, Cabaret 101. And um. Mum was just like, mum just yelled that, oh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and it really kind of took the air out of it. And then we, I think, if my memory is more, we actually had a bit of a back and forth in front of the audience where I told her off and then she told me off. And then at another show, she just got up as I was singing the last song. Like, she just got up and I said, where are you going? And she's like, I'm really hot. I need to just leave. And I was like, okay. That's Heather Flanders, ladies and gentlemen. So I think it's more that my parents and family want to stage their own shows rather than that they have any problem with mine. Um, you even managed to make cancer compelling and and and, and funny, you know, describing about that your partner has uh, mm. experienced. Um, is that, uh, I don't want to say therapy on stage, but is that a, a catharsis also to sort of work through all of that in front of an audience? It's certainly like some way that I've, uh, it's, it's very like, I've thought about this a lot, but it's um, it's kind of a natural impulse for me to write down what I what is going on in my life and try and make sense of it through writing it and turn it. And it's, I mean, a lot of people do it and turn it into a funny story, make it something that like people can enjoy. And they don't always have to be funny, but even my sort of like, downbeat stories have a lot of humor in them you know one of my uh, the line that I really like in um Ash Flanders is nothing is when I'm I say something about like uh you know and I'm feeling really bad because my partner's got cancer and he's got COVID and he's in the infectious diseases ward and I really am having like the worst I'm having the worst lockdown ever and then I'm like oh except for my partner Daniel and I go oh well Daniel wins again and it's just that idea of like competitive suffering within couples and in relationships. And so even 
even when it's sad, I think you have to find the funniness. That's where my humour always comes from, is like from the actual hardness of life or the sadness of life. Well, a line that leapt out to me was, a person who makes solo shows about their life doesn't take naturally to a supporting <laughs> role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a great thing about me is I will laugh at my own material. That's really attractive. But um, <laughs> no, that is true. I, that was when Daniel, we found out he had cancer and I bought two bottles of wine thinking that he'd want a drink and then he didn't. And then I just proceeded to get drunk in front of him on the day that he found out he had cancer. Um, so that's well. But I mean, I've also written a play called This Is Living, which will be on at um, Malthouse next year. And that's very much inspired by all of that as well. So yeah. like, I am very big on turning your suffering or turning your neuroses into something that other people can experience, A, for catharsis, and B, because... I'm just a theatre person. Like, that's where I put everything. Well, certainly that the audience can experience, but but I'm sure in many times, many cases, that they can relate to. Um, I lost a sister to brain tumour 20 years ago, but yeah. but what you were saying about the the way that the doctors dealt with you and, and that communication, all that was was brought back so many memories, um, which yes. was, 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 was actually, I must say, lovely to revisit and, and reflect on. Yeah, I just their love of metaphor, but they don't seem to really know how metaphors work. I just remember, you know, Daniel had acute myeloid leukemia and um, for any concerned listeners, he's doing great now. But um, it was like, uh, it was full on the way they'd be like, well, okay, so now this is happening. It's like the blood has thorns, okay? And this element of the blood is cutting up the other elements of the blood. And if you think of the marrow like a factory that produces grass and the grass factor, and I'm like, this is just... We're, and why is everything garden related? This is just, it's too much, just too much. <laughs> Which was, again, really hard for me to deal with because Daniel had cancer, but I was like, these are really bad metaphors and they're really mixed. Yeah, yeah. And, and especially, <laughs> they, they did not know that they were talking to a writer. <laughs> exactly. Well, some of them did. Some of them were like, oh, is this going to be in the show? And I'd be like, not right now. <laughs> Let's just maybe support Daniel right now when he was getting chemo and the guy Kyle from trials was like which I love Kyle from trials um he was like oh I you're an actor what theater are you doing next what like did you see this show did you see this show and I was like I think Daniel wants some ice or something can we maybe just make sure Daniel's comfortable and then yes we'll talk about theater for the next hour but let's just make sure he's sorted first <laughs> your uh, your mum and dad must enjoy their celebrity status if if audiences are looking forward to seeing your mum in the audience. Yes, they do. I think they they're both like neither of them are what you would call creatives, but they my mum certainly has a lot of personality and my dad has a really great dry sense of humor as well. And I think they both, you know, they love they love seeing a show and they certainly love um seeing seeing my shows and getting talked about um yeah it's very interesting as they've gotten older I feel like they've waned a little <laughs> like the last time my parents came they saw my show SS Metaphor at um Vault House and the only thing my mum talked about after the show where um it was the first show I'd done really up since Dan's diagnosis and lockdown and the pandemic and we're back and I'm on the outdoor stage and I'm the first big show back in Melbourne or one of them. It's like, it feels amazing. And all my mum said was, 
Oh, the loaded fries here are really bad. You know, when I buy loaded fries, I expect the fry to be able to carry the load. And she talked to me for a good 10 minutes about her loaded fries and how they'd really let her down. And I was like, did you enjoy the show? And she was like, oh, yes. And then went through every other performer, every other element of the show that was not me. It was wild. It was like, it was like she was negging me. <laughs> it was really amazing. I'd mentioned like the lighting. She goes, oh, I thought the lighting was amazing. And the way they lit that actor, Natalie, she was, inc- I mean, what a star. She is incredible. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's why, that's why like I cast her. And she'd be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is bizarre. On. It's like some sort of power play with some parents, isn't it? You've you've either got the the the, sh- the show mum who was all over yes. you and tells you how wonderful you are and blows smoke up your ass, or yes. um, like your mum who will sort of yes. avoid everything they can to to tell you that they're proud or or that they uh, thought you were good. And it's your classic, like, then other people come up and say, oh, no, she talks about how much she loved the show all the time. Or, like, you know, like, they'll say it to everyone else. I mean, it's it's nothing new. But I will say in terms of stage mum versus stage monster, which I would call my <laughs> mother, um, it's like the monster at least keeps you, some part of me is still trying to achieve something, which is, I guess, some sort of approval from them, which I also don't want really. But um, it's just like a natural thing to, like, like a little kid performing in the living room and being like, what, did you like it? Or like, but there is something embarrassing about being 40 years old and still like, it feels like I'm, I finish a show as like coming up from doing a handstand in a pool and going like, you weren't looking, I was doing it. And I've really got to grow up, which is actually what this show end of is largely about. <laughs> about growing up. Yes. Um, end of which which you, you've uh, played before at the Malthouse, I think, wasn't it? Had its debut season. No, 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 no it was only at um, it was at um the uh, at Northcote Town Hall in Darabin, and it was the last show people saw, or a lot of people saw before the pandemic, because it was like it opened on March uh, 2020, and then it only ran for uh, three performances before we had to shut down. Well, it's great that Sydney are finally getting to see it at the uh, the Griffith yes. Theatre um, over October and November. Um, you deal with some big themes, ageing and and parenthood and um, and the big end. Um, yeah. You're not, you're not shying away from some heavy, heavy topics. Yeah, I've always been, I mean, I think about this stuff all the time and I think a lot of people do, you know, your classic. And this all sprang from me getting this desk job Um which I read a thing recently that Griffin put out. It was like an, uh, an actor meets its uh, its nemesis, a desk job. And it was really, I didn't I didn't think to put it that way, but that's really what it was. Um, and so I was in this desk job and I just had a lot of time to think about what the hell was happening to my life and where I was going and how did I get here. And, um, and the job was actually transcribing these police interviews. So I'm hearing other people tell their stories and listen to their narratives. And so it became this weird snake eating its tail kind of thing where I just felt saturated in writing and narratives and trying to structure the world through stories. And then, yeah, I started to unpack how I came to be here. And and then slowly, as she is wont to do, my mother just, like, slowly ate the rest of the show. She, like... It's like, and then that's a great tension in the show is that like, you think it's a, it's a one man show, but it's actually a two person show. And actually the one man tends to leave and the character that everyone falls in love with is my mother. And that is one of my, my 
favorite reasons to write is to kind of educate an audience or make an audience fall in love with someone from my life who I love. It's very like, uh, it's really nice to have that feeling of like, if even for a second that you've granted them like some sort of uh, immortality in, in the dream, it's an immortality that you're like, see, and that was Heather Flanders. Isn't she fabulous? Isn't she amazing? And that's a really nice feeling to do, especially as they get older and you're like very much worried about getting that text at an odd hour or a phone call at a strange time. And you're like, this is all going to happen. It's all going down. So it's very much a heartfelt piece, which oddly, the, the older I get, that's more where I'm writing from. At least that's where the, the genesis comes from. It'll always be snarky and twisted because that's just who I am. I'm very damaged. But it will also be at the core of it is a really heartfelt thing, which people seem to like. I think everyone has that duality of like, you know, a hard front, a bitter exterior, and then a soft gooey inside. Uh, the wonderful thing about aging is that you accumulate all this wisdom uh, garnered from various experiences and, um, and so forth. Um, are you happy about being 40? Um, yeah. I'm happy I don't look it, but I'm happy I am 40. I mean, again, when you've had a sick partner or someone in your life who's been really sick, you are like, all that stuff really falls by the wayside. But um, I'm not at all where I thought I would be at 40, but I'm like very happy to be 40 and I'm very happy to be making work and getting to do what I love. So no, no complaints for me. Uh, had you... Was your ambition a little bit higher for forty, or or you oh god, yes, professionally, yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah, I thought I thought I was going to be that kid after drama school that just booked the TV gig and then I'm off to Hollywood and incredibly naive, especially about a the way the business ran, b who I was, c what I looked like and sounded like, um, trying to make a career in Australia as a pointy faced homosexual with a not so sweet. Uh, exterior is not the easiest thing. Australians don't tend to like sarcastic, snarky, bitchy queens. And unfortunately, that's just how I was drawn. So that is a really hard thing. So I kind of had to learn how to find my own way, which has been incredibly useful because, you know, I always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't imagine I had what it took. I didn't imagine I was, you know, good enough. And I had to just learn how to make my own work and make it happen for myself. So that's been a really exciting thing about getting older as well. It's just like letting those fears slip away and just trying to go out of my comfort zone a bit more. Uh, you seem to me to be a very a naturally funny person. Were, were you the class clown as a kid? No, I was incredibly quiet. Not in, actually, no. That's that's an absolute bald faced lie. I was <laughs> uh, I was talkative, but I wasn't like funny, funny, and I I didn't want attention. I went to this all boys school, and it was really like it was your rowing team, your football team, really butch, really quite scary a lot of the time. And I I was like invisible. I like made sure that I was not noticed in any way. So I tried to make no impression, which is not what people would accuse me of now. I take up all the oxygen in the room. But um, it was it was a very different person. And I was closeted and, and like, didn't want to be gay and, you know, hated myself and all of that stuff. It was very, it was quite full on looking back on it. 
I had to go to therapy. I left the school. I went to a state school that was like more like a university, like an arty school where you wore casual clothes and called your teachers by their first names and your hair color could be whatever you wanted it to be. And mine was you know, rainbow within two days. And I was wearing suspenders and like dressing like Buster Keaton and like insane. Of course, I didn't know I was dressing like Buster Keaton. I thought I was dressing like Johnny Depp in Benny and June. Um, but it was Buster Keaton that I was emulating. So it, once I hit that school, I kind of felt more able to kind of be myself and I felt less terrified. And it was still another three more years before I even came out. So, you know. I'm not quick to things. Was it a religious upbringing at home and at school? Well, the school was Anglican, um, not super religious, but that said by today's standards, it was like it was like I went to school in a Dickens novel because kids still got the cane or the sand shoe. You had to learn Latin. You like it was like it was it was just an arrested school. It was completely arrested in time. Um and you had to go to assembly once a week and you would sing hymns and read from the prayer book and you had to do religious education. And then on the school holiday, and I was miserable there, you know, for most of the year. And then on the school holidays, um, we'd go to my mum's brother's Christian youth camp. And so I was having fun there because there were girls for a start who I get along with way better than boys. And, you know, you were doing activities, having fun, like making friends and but even that was like you would also do religious study in the morning and religious study at night so like even though that was a lot more like fun Christianity and a lot more like really fun songs that sounded kind of like rock or pop songs with hand actions and dances it was still <laughs> indoctrination which was <laughs> a little intense um so I think it was it was largely the religious reasons that that kind of arrested me from sort of coming out or dealing with any of that, because I legitimately was very afraid of hell, very afraid of hell. And in fact, the devil does make an appearance in End Of because it's just like so deep in my subconscious, that stuff. It kind of never leaves you. Christianity just, I say it in End Of, it's more addictive than any drug. It's just always there. Once you've had that first hit, it's kind of always there. Do you carry a, a spirituality now? I sure don't. Right. I um, I no, no. I'm much more subscribed at the moment to like chaos, and that <laughs> uh, that this is all inherently uh, meaningless, or that you create the meaning yourself. Because you know, when Daniel was really sick, I, I obviously thought a lot about what would happen and what that would mean, or you know, what is after this. And I really hope there is something after it. But in terms of doing something every day, that was really useful for me in terms of being like, you should just like let people know that you love them and make people's lives easier and try and be of service where you can. Just that stuff. I think like that's a really good spiritual practice. As I get older, I probably will take up something. I don't know what it will be. You know, maybe I'll just put uh, put googly eyes on rocks and that'll be my practice. <laughs> you mentioned Buster Keaton before. Uh, who were your comic heroes? Oh my god! I, um, oh my god! I've dreamt of being asked this question, and now I, I'm completely blanking. Uh, my number one hero probably is John Waters. I'm just a huge John Waters fan. I think he's really funny, incredibly sophisticated, and like punk. And there aren't a many enough great words to say about John Waters. Um, I also, you know, and the older I've gotten, the more I've realized, like, I'm just really drawn to like 
a lot of gay male people that I kind of look to. So, like, I really love Quentin Crisp. I think he's incredibly funny and witty and cold. And I've just been reading that Tennessee Williams again for the second time and falling in love with Tennessee. So, like, it's very cliche what I like. It's just and like... No, no Coward, I dare say. No Coward, yes, I talk about him in End Of. Yes, No Coward. All these, like, anyone who I think is just like... I, I do love that, like... And it's probably really out of vogue now, but like that kind of gay male wit, I still really like it. Someone who can turn a phrase, uh, Oscar Wilde, obviously, like I just find that all incredible. And I'm I'm never going to be that, but like I love that as something to shoot for. I like people that kind of painted big and went big. Um, you sort of remind me a bit of a cross between Stephen Fry and Julian Clary. Oh, thank you. Thank that, you so much. I true? hope I have the bone structure of Clary, but the brain of Fry. That's all I yeah. want. Like, in terms of Fry, oh, maybe I'd take the young husband as well. But, like, yes, I do love both of them too. I mean, Stephen Fry can get a little on my knockers, but Julian Clary is, like, like Daniel, my partner, always says, oh, um, just going to suck on a fisherman's friend, which is some <laughs> Julian Clary line, and we say it all the time. Oh, I love him. I love him. And I, you know, growing up, I thought Bob Down was really funny. And yeah, I've always loved effeminate gay men a lot. I don't know why. You uh, you may not be old enough to remember Julian Clary's uh, quiz show, Sticky Moments. Have you ever seen that? No, great title. Yeah. No. It was it was wicked and saucy, uh, very funny. Um, do a search and see if you can find it because uh, maybe, I will. maybe that's what you need to do, a, a, a quiz show, a saucy quiz show. Maybe, maybe. I also really love Kenneth Williams and Kenneth Williams' diaries are kind of my favourite because in terms of, I always say, like, if I was going to have a production company, it would be called, like, Sad Clown Productions. And I think Kenneth Williams is the ultimate sad clown. He's kind of amazing and so tortured but so yeah he wanted to give of himself all the time but he was also intensely private and closeted and repressed but so such a sissy in public but like also didn't want to be the butt of the joke it's so tortured yeah. it's a great read even Morrissey from <laughs> Morrissey said it was the saddest book he'd ever read and if <laughs> Morrissey says it's sad it's really sad but he was so eloquent as well and had this great command of language. I, I was watching him the other night yes. on Parkinson in Australia. Uh, have you seen yep. that? Yep. The old clip? And, I think um, so. I've, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, him but, doing the story of um, with Maggie Smith shopping for a bra. And then, <laughs> um, have you heard that one? She goes, 20 guineas for a bra, cheaper to get your tits off. And he's just <laughs> so funny. He's so good. <laughs> So what, what was the um the the, the drama um, opportunities for you you growing up? Did you attend a lot of live theater? Were you in the school plays? Okay, I yes, I, I attended some. Like I remember the first musical we saw, I saw Return to the Forbidden Planet, which is such a funny choice and oddly perfect because it's uh for anyone who doesn't know, it's kind of the plot of the Tempest set in outer space with Shakespeare lines, but also jukebox 50s, 60s kind of doo-wop material. So it's a sci-fi doo-wop Shakespeare <laughs> production. And 
I remember loving that. And the thing that I loved the most about it was that I wasn't getting everything that was happening. Like I couldn't quite follow it all, but I was just so excited to see this. Well, like giant tentacles coming down from the ceiling and like gripping a woman and her shrieking. And it was like a B movie brought to life. And um, I really think that kind of informed my my brain. And then we saw um we saw Phantom and we saw Beauty and the Beast. And the best thing about Beauty and the Beast where we saw it is that um Belle's dad entered the beast's lair like right at the top of the show and he was like hello hello and then nothing was happening and then he just started going hello hello and I didn't realize because I was too young but obviously some huge piece of machinery just wasn't working and the beast couldn't make his entrance and um then the curtain went down they were like we can't do the show you'll all have to come back another day um which I just love like I didn't realize why I found that moment so exciting but was because something was failing (laughs) right in front of us and the stakes were so high and it wasn't working and I was like I could live in this forever um and then in terms of school productions I was never the lead uh growing up I was always like core if you need to know the the background vocals for Jesus Christ Superstar crucify him crucify him um we have no king but Caesar. I can take you through that. I made my mum hand dye my Ishka top to match the brown and Shiraz tones they wanted for all of the chorus kids. Um, but no, my first ever like lead role in something, I was I was the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz by the time I was in year 12. Huge, huge. I mean, it's the lead male role in that show outside of The Wicked Witch of the West. And um, that was very exciting. And then, but like, I don't even know that most people would have ever thought that I would do this for a living. You know, I was a bit of a show off and I was a talkative person outside of school, but I don't know that everyone thought I was going to do drama so hardcore, but I always knew I wanted to. Like I tried to get my parents, I made my parents take me to a child's agency when I was like a kid. I'd looked it up in the phone book and said, this is where we need to go. I've booked us an appointment and you're going to have to pay this ridiculous amount for photographs. And I'm, as it turns out, never going to get cast, which was a great, great lesson to take into adulthood. It really prepared me for what life as an adult actor would be like. And then at drama school, I didn't get many leads either. I was always like, you know, kooky characters or I was a messenger for all of second year. That was thrilling. Um, Yeah, no. So again, like that's sort of like everything kind of kept telling me like I was probably going to have to make it myself, which is like something I was like more than happy to do. You studied at uh, the Ballarat Academy of Performing Arts, of course, Mm -hmm. in in Victoria. Um, Did you enjoy that regional experience growing up in, um, in Melbourne? Yes. Yes. I loved being in a country town. I really, really enjoyed it because I loved it like being able to walk everywhere. I I had this fantasy that going to like a drama school, especially in a country town, it was going to be like a very monastic experience. And I would like wake up at six and eat some rice and go there. And I'd be there until 10 o'clock at night and we'd be fencing and doing Shakespeare and like there'd be cameras and we'd be learning Moliere. And it was going to be like, you know, a never ending like workload. And I was so keen to like dive in, um, because if there's one thing I can do, it's commit hard. But um, uh, that wasn't the experience. It was a lot more. It was a lot more like turn up at ten, uh, have lunch, leave by five. More of a reasonable like student workload. Um, I was still eating rice all the time. Um, uh, but most other students were, you know, 
smoking bongs and <laughs> doing, doing whatever they were doing while I was still like, guys, this is really serious. This is really serious. We need to be really good. And back then I wasn't doing any comedy. Like I, I thought I was like a dramatic actor. I really wanted to be like a dramatic actor. Yeah, it was bizarre. Very bizarre. I, I really enjoyed it. But also that school was going through a huge flux at the time. And by third year, I was already writing. I wrote my own show and put it on in my house with friends in the cast. And we charged people to come to the house and see the show. Because I was like, I'm not getting enough out of this course. So I'm just going to teach myself like how to do a play and how to make it happen. So I did that. That was cool. I've often thought an essential subject in a drama school experience is... Um, how to create your own work, how to make your own work. Um, but obviously you, yeah. you, were the, you were the professor that, um, that taught yourself to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they never, they never taught us that. They taught us like, you know, like uh, how to create a small indie theatre company, but it was very like people that hadn't worked in a long time telling you that, you know, like you should call yourself. I remember the idea we came up with, we'd be called Espresso Theatre Company, which is already terrible. And I think we called ourselves Expresso because we were expressing. And our business model was that we would do theatre during office workers' lunch break so they could come in and we would do satirical news headline kind of satire sketches over people's lunch break. And looking back on it, I can't imagine anything that people would want to do less on their 45 minutes out of the office than sit and listen to a bunch of undergrads go, I do think the Prime Minister sounds a little like this. Um, but that was our idea. So, yeah, you can't, yeah, I always say you can't teach hunger. And I was always very hungry. Yeah. Well, don't be surprised. There was, there's a company here called the the Q Theatre in Penrith that have been around for mm. 40, 40 years or so. And one of their early ventures was was lunchtime theatre down at Circular Quay for um, people who were uh, on their lunch hour. Yes. I think, I'm sure it can work. It does, it already sounded to me even at that time, though, this is like early 2000s, like it was a bit, a few decades too late for that idea. But who knows? What I, what I don't know about what office workers want to do will not shock you. Yeah. I have no idea what people want to do. Yeah. Coffee took longer to make then, I suppose. So they had to fill in their, <laughs> fill in their time. Um, <laughs> what was that first show about that you performed in, the, in your lounge room in Ballarat? Oh, it was called This Side Up. And it was a short uh, sort of a 35 minute play about three housemates living in a share house and one of them is moving out. And the big story is that like it's three guys and I played the guy that was kind of the loser of the group and he was finally leaving to move in with his girlfriend. And um, he was uh, he finally had it out with the other two. Like and he was finally like and I've hated living here and you're going nowhere and you're you're piece of garbage and he finally stood up for himself and um then there was the phone call again and the girlfriend was saying oh let's break up I don't want to live together and then he had to stay in the house with them afterwards um so it was a very simple just dumb one act thing but that was done with no one ever teaching me how to like write but I was always a pretty intense writer even in high school we had to like write a monologue and I think it was like year eight and I decided I would write a monologue about a Mormon who'd left the church and how he's had to disconnect from his family and how hard that is because he was never going to be what his parents wanted him to be, which is so embarrassingly like just like the gay kid in the class trying to not talk about being gay while also really talking about being gay. And everyone else's monologues were like they were robbing a bank 
or they were a superhero. And mine was like, I just got up and like told this sad story and like cried in front of the class. <laughs> it was so intense. It's just, yeah, too many feelings, too many feelings. They have to come out somewhere. Apparently. Yes. Now, how did you meet Declan Green? Um, the elusive Declan Green. I met him. So I was working at a gas pipe. Naturally, I was working at a, as a gas at a gas pipeline company as a legal archivist, and uh, not doing any work, just sitting and reading blogs all day. The same stack of papers stayed on my desk for nine months. Um, then I was I would spend my time when I wasn't reading blogs looking up a website. I think it was called like FilmNet or something for auditions because I had no agent, no way to get a job. And Declan and another person, Kirsten, had posted a an audition notice and I called for a, for a comedy sketch show that was going to be on at the comedy festival. And so I, I called them up and I'd already missed the auditions, but I just went straight to the callback and uh, went in and the script that they sent me, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly my kind of comedy. This is exactly what I'd like to make. And uh, went in and auditioned for Declan and Kirsten and they, they liked me and I knew that I'd gotten it by the time I left and Sure enough, as I walked home, I got the call. And then we did that show. Declan and Kirsten had a huge falling out. They're no longer talking during the show. Everything's gone completely south. And Declan doesn't turn up to bump out. And I remember saying, if I never see that queen, Declan Green, again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> and then uh, within a few weeks, he sent me this lovely email, a, a very rare Declan Green apology. And I should have framed it. And um. He was saying that uh, they'd had this falling out. None of us knew this. They'd had this falling out, this whole thing. And um, then he uh, said, we should hang out. And so we started hanging out. <laughs> of course, what I say mean, I never want to see him again. Let's hang out. Okay. Um, we hung out. And then uh, my boyfriend at the time said, you two are like the sisters grim when you get together because you're just so vicious and you just laugh about everyone which he must have stolen from somewhere because he was never that funny. Um, and then, ex, ex, Exes uh, never are. Ex <laughs> <laughs> they all die so quickly. It's so weird. Um, and then he, then he, Declan said, we should write a play together. And I was like, absolutely, let's do that. And so we started, I think, in 2006 uh, writing, or maybe 2005 we started writing our first play together. And it was just like a lot of fun straight away. And then we just kept making work for years and years and years. I mean, you've written, I think, over a dozen shows together, including yeah. Summertime in the Garden of Eden. I mean, they're great titles. Little Mercy, The Sovereign Wife, Calpurnia Descending. Did you come up with them, the titles? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, we would. We both did. It'd be weird. It'd be like what was so strange is that Calpurnia Descending, Summertime and Lilith, The Jungle Girl, we come up with all those three ideas in one afternoon and we wrote them all down and we're like, this is how this show will go. And it's called this and it's about this. And there are these characters. It was like a crazy burst of creative energy. Um, and yeah, sometimes the title would just like tell you what it was. Summertime in the Garden of Eden started because we had to do a response. So there was this group in uh, Melbourne called the Last Tuesday Society and they did this thing called Pimp My Play where you would um, react to a play and you were given a scene from a play and you had to react to it and um, write your own piece in response to it. And it could be whatever you wanted. And so we got given Nick Enright's 
Black, is it called Black Rock or is it called? Black, yes, no, Black Rock. Yes. Yes, Black Rock. And um, it was a store, it was the scene or, where or, they Or do the... you mean it was started as property of the clan, of course, which is a theater that's of education. It, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. See, and the things I don't Black know. Rock. Yeah. Right. We got the scene where all the kids are at the surf club having a party. And we were like, oh God, we have no connection to that world. But uh, one of us, I don't know, might have been me or Dakota, said, um, wouldn't it be funny if the party was more like one of those Tennessee Williams, like real, like Southern melodrama kind of parties. And so then we just started writing this very much inspired by Tennessee uh, sort of party scene where, you know, the guy turns up at the end and he's got his arm in a sling and the daughter's forced to marry him. And the dad was a closeted homosexual. And we kind of wrote that and it was um a lot of fun. And then Declan, I think was like, we should just write that as a whole play. And so we wrote it and it was just like about, yeah, sisters and secrets and what happened in the Garden of Eden all those years ago. You know, it was a lot of fun. So how do you describe or define the shows as as theatrical forms? Because they <laughs> are informed by a whole range of styles, you know, and 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 um, playwrights. You talk about Tennessee Williams, but there's vaudeville in there and, and gothic and... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, everything. Um, sitcom and... Yeah. <laughs> Many yes. genres. What yeah. haven't we thrown at it? It's sort of like one of the ways that we describe it is that like um, we're a queer theatre company in the sense of queer as to like um, investigate or pull something apart and queer sort of being a slippage between meanings and a way to kind of like interrogate a thing and deconstruct it. And the thing that we're often deconstructing is like genre. And so, and genre to a sense, but also just... Uh, well-worn narratives like so we've got like little mercy is the evil child film done on stage um and in our version of course the way we undermine it is like the evil child is played by a woman in her 70s and you know i played the mother who no one believes and and, and so when the mother is saying like there's something a little wrong with mercy and there's an old lady standing there in a baby doll dress it's kind of something very it, it's just fun to kind of like look at the uh the values those stories are kind of espousing and because uh, they must be saying something for us to keep performing them or seeing versions of them. And so we kind of look at that and then try and challenge what they're saying. And so like The Sovereign Wife was our big Australian epic and that was done because we we're invited to be part of MTC's first neon season, this, you know, festival of uh, new work. And um, we were like, wouldn't it be funny to do a piss take of like, the big MTC show about Australia, you know, like the MTC trying to really like sum up what it means to be Australian. And so also Baz Luhrmann's Australia had just come out. And so it felt like there was this weird sense of like uh, Australia as this like a uh, place of myth-making and stories and obviously a very white Australia. Um, and so we kind of decided to do this big bloated Australian epic that was three acts with two intervals and went for over three hours and um, but populating it with all the bodies that are like kind of excluded from those stories normally. And so it was, you know, people, uh, POC people and queer people and, and women playing men and men playing women in different ages. And that's sort of something we always did as well, is we always tried to like use casting as a way to kind of redress uh, or in, reinvestigate the story, which now is kind of like old hat. Like everyone, every play does that now. Um, and we certainly did not uh, invent that that convention to any extent, but we certainly were doing it a lot and in every show. 
Um, so it's just, yeah, I, that's a very long answer to how I would describe how we work or what we're trying to do. I thought but it was very, very succinct. <laughs> I don't give short answers. <laughs> Another one of your great collaborators is uh, Stephen Nicolazzo, who has directed mm -hmm. a, a lot of your work. Um, collaboration yeah. is essential to produce good work, isn't it? Yeah, and finding the people that you trust and who your tribe is is really, you know, and even though I've been I've been doing this for a long time now, um my circle of trust is still pretty small, like maybe too small. I probably should. But like Stephen Nicolato's work is just always incredible. Like he he knows staging. Stephen knows how to put on a show. And so if you see a Stephen Nicolazzo show, you are watching a show. It celebrates what I love about theatre, which is like liveness and image and sex and like shock. He does all of that so well. And like all of us, like Stephen, Stephen went through a really, you know, punk, crazy, intense, loud, throw everything at the wall stage. And now I think all of us are kind of into a much more nuanced look at theatre and so like he's doing Alabrandi at the moment and that is not nearly you know that's not a show that Nicolazzo five years ago would have made even it's like and what I like is is being surrounded by people who are also still constantly evolving as artists but that have the skills to always back it up so Stephen is someone I can take a show like End Of to which I had all these pieces of writing and I was like, I feel like there's a show here. I don't know the structure yet. And Stephen helped me order it. And he, he's, he would say things like, I don't think you need to say that there. Or I think like, we don't really care about that as the audience. Like we need to move on to the next thing. Or like that ties into that earlier. And it's a brain that I trust because there are, you know, there are other people I've worked with who would suggest things and I'd be like, oh, I think we're just thinking very differently about the show we're making. But with Stephen because we also come from such a similar, like, world. He's been making theatre a long time. I've been making theatre a long time. We both make queer theatre. We're both from Melbourne. We're both of, like, similar ages. It kind of, I think we're both shooting in the same direction, even though where we land is often different when we're on our own. I think it's like we both, we both get each other's references as well. There's a shared language straight away. Uh, when writing, uh, do you have those moments of dilemma where you wonder, yes. can, I <laughs> can I really say this? And, and you know, have you gone too far with the joke or, or are you uh, mindful of, of the impact that some of the, the jokes, where they might land? Ah, uh, yes. Yes, I think, and again, that's like come with time. When we started out as Sisters Grimm, like, uh, the comedy at the time was like South Park and, and Strangers with Candy, shows that we loved that were like all about shock. And we loved, you know, really early John Waters. So it was about being the most outrageous, shocking thing you could do. And we were coming out of a time where a lot of theatre seemed to be really like worthy, socially conscious shows about refugees or like kitchen sink dramas. Like it was very like theatre as cultural medicine. And we wanted theatre to be like, a gig like a crazy live gig that you were gonna see and and like uh, we wanted it to be like the stuff we were actually watching at home that we actually found enjoyable which was sort of shocking in your face comedy but now I I don't have that urge to to shock above all else anymore and I don't want to do that and obviously the conversation is just in comedy has moved on so much that now we absolutely have to think about like 
What is this joke reinforcing? What is it undermining? Are you in a position to make that joke? Should yeah, or or like how can you make a joke that is the next level above that joke that makes fun of something else? So yeah, I think about it a lot. I think about it a lot. It's another reason I write really personal work. A, it's because that's my natural impulse, but B, it also means that like if I'm laughing at myself, I, I feel like that's allowed. <laughs> I feel like we can all still agree that I'm allowed to like laugh at myself. And so, or I can tease my family or I can tease my friends or my loved ones because they all, we all know that the conversation I'm having with the audience is uh, kind of an, it's it's like you're being let into my world. It's not like, a, yeah, does that make sense? It's yeah, like absolutely. when you hang out with your friends and you you hang shit on each other. It's like that's what I do in public, but I would never go so hard on a friend in public like I would in private with them. It's like I never want to hurt anyone's feelings, um, but I do still want to make kind of funny, outrageous to an extent work. Yeah. yeah. Outrageous is good. Yeah. 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 I think as I think as this, and from what I hear from people, that's, where they find the most release is like when they go, oh my God, I've thought that too. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Those people are really annoying. Or yes. Why do parents do that? Or like, oh yeah, my cancer experience was very similar and no one ever talks about that. That's when I feel best. It's when I feel like I'm hitting on something that's like niche, but true. The the Malthouse Theatre Company in Melbourne have just released their 2023 season, so we should get a plug in for uh, This Is Living, which actually sounds like a Noel Coward title. Thank you so much. I um I have to give, unfortunately, I have to give End Of and This Is Living are both titles given to me by a friend, um, a comedian friend who is really funny, but um, uh, who sees my work and will be like, ah, oh, because originally End Of was called Strong Material and I make a, re- and it was all about, you know, how this material is funny and strong, but also I am made of strong material and I'm made of strong material by because of my mother and who gives me all my strong material. Anyway, it's kind of esoteric title. End of is a way stronger title. And she just said, oh no, it's called end of. And I went, yes, yes, it is. And uh, this person came up with the title, This Is Living, because it's a running joke in our group. And that group is the subject of the play. So it's about um, a gay couple, one of whom is a writer performer one of whom has cancer going away uh with three older female friends and uh very much inspired by the new years i had uh two years ago so 2020 to 21 new years in dalesford um with this group of women and i just thought that um a i wanted it to be a really like comforting play during that hard time i wanted to watch things like beaches and steel magnolias and like those kind of movies that are like they have a lot of heart but they're also really funny and just have great quotable characters so I really wanted to do that and I wanted to make a play that was kind of a naturalism which I'd never done before uh which is a really tricky formula a form to work in and I wanted it to be populated again with characters that I don't feel like necessarily are the kind of go-to sexy narrative characters which are like these are women in their 50s and gay men in their either late late uh, 30s or late 30s 40s like these aren't young beautiful things nor are they like wise old ladies nor are they like straight couples this is like three unmarried female with no kids mostly one of them has a kid and two gay guys who are not young hot things like one has cancer and the other doesn't seem to be doing very well in their life so like 
I was excited by the idea of doing that because I also think there's a real connection between uh, gay men and and women and not just women their own age, women of an of, a, of an older age who that that group of friends that I have again, it's just I wanted to write something that would make everyone see this group of friends who I love. And so I really hope that's what it does. And I've, I've had a friend say, like, he he goes on getaways with older women as well. It's like, it's a thing, but I've never seen it on stage before. Is it harder to to play yourself on stage than it is to play a character? Or is yourself on stage a character? I would say for me, myself on stage is me turned up to an 11. Like, it's... It is me. Like the me you see an end of is me. Although now it's oddly, it's a me from 2020. Um, uh, so it is me. I love playing characters. I love getting to hide in characters and and be someone else. That's that's why I became an actor. I think it was also because I was really uncomfortable with who I was. So I I desperately wanted to be anyone else. Um, so that was that was a big thing. And then once I came out and got a bit more comfortable with who I was, I started to want to also be myself on stage. And I enjoy that negotiation. That said, This Is Living is not is not me and the character's not called Ash and I'm not playing him. I cast someone younger. Um, so it's like, yeah, I enjoy I enjoy being me. It's It's been really interesting thinking about, like, I don't, as an actor, you know, you never know where your career's going. But um, I wonder if I'll be more myself or if I'll be more other people like I I do love being crazy characters and I, I think I have a knack for especially like wild comedic characters well we look forward to having your crazy character in Sydney um for end of <laughs> at the Griffin Theatre which is playing from October 13th to November 5th and of course bookings can always be made through griffintheatre.com.au um you must be here very very soon I leave tomorrow have you I'm packed so your excited. Ba- have you packed your bag? Yes. What you're not seeing in this Zoom frame is bags everywhere and things everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> well, thanks, Ash. It's been uh, been lovely to meet you at long last and, and to have this chat. And uh, all the best. Thank you, Peter. Will I see you at the show? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'll book and I'll be there. So I'll, I'll, see you in the, I'll see you in the Penny Cook Bar afterwards. Oh, that's my favourite part of performance. The bar afterwards? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> see you there. I'll see you there. Bye, Peter. Ash Flanders will premiere a new play, This Is Living, at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne in 2023. You can catch him now performing a one-man show, also penned by Ash, titled End Of, at the Griffin Theatre in Sydney from October 13th to November 5th. Thanks for joining us in this episode. Check out all of the episodes featured thus far in the podcast by checking out the website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or from wherever you find your favourite podcast. And please don't hesitate in leaving a review um, and a, uh, a rating. It, uh, it helps get the word out there so that a much wider audience can enjoy all of these fabulous conversations. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time, you know where, on Stages. <laughs>